All right, good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see everybody. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. Uh, I've seen some people today that I haven't seen in a while, so welcome back. Good to see you. Welcome back to America. Um, we're continuing our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn there? We're in chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And while you're turning there, um, let me ask you a question. What comes to mind for you when you hear the word rosebud? I'm guessing for some of you, you think about a flower. It's kind of obvious. If you Google rosebud, then you see a picture of a rosebud. Uh, but others of us are immediately thinking of the classic film Citizen Kane. Now, Citizen Kane was voted a few years back the greatest American movie ever made or something like that by the American Film Institute, uh, the greatest film of all time. And if you're really in the know, you're not just thinking about Citizen Kane in general, the movie, but you're actually thinking about what Rosebud means in that movie. You're thinking about the significance of that single word. Now, I know a lot of people haven't seen this movie. It's an old movie. So Citizen Kane, it tells the story of a man named Charles Foster Kane. Okay, he's Citizen Kane. And he's this wealthy, influential man who, at the start of the film, is actually on his deathbed. So it starts at the end of his life, and he's on his deathbed, and he's holding the snow globe in his hand. And he mutters this word. He, he says this word, rosebud, and then he dies. His last word before he dies is rosebud, and everyone wants to know what it means. What could rosebud mean? His death and the mystery of his final word Peak the world's imagination and kind of as the story unfolds and really what the story is, is people trying to figure out what Rosebud means. So there's this reporter who was actually assigned by a newspaper to figure out the mystery of Rosebud. And he goes to all these people that knew Charles Foster Kane in his life, people that had met him, people that had worked with him. And he interviews them to try to figure out the significance of why he would say something like Rosebud. So the movie is basically a highlight and low light reel of Charles Kane's life. You see the good, you see the bad, you see him as a kid. Uh, he grew up in this boarding house, but he was happy back then. He was content to play outside with his sled in the snow. But even then, you could start to see how things are going to take a turn in his life. His parents are already planning his future, and his parents are super rich. Some investments pay off, and by the time he's in his early 20s, he becomes the richest man or one of the richest men in the entire world. He marries the niece of the president, but not everything is all, you know, good. He's not always rising. He has an affair with this woman. He cheats on his wife. Their marriage falls apart. He runs for governor, but some scandals derail him. He buys a newspaper, basically a tabloid, and uses it to achieve more wealth and influence. But in doing so, he makes a lot of enemies, and he loses the few friends that he does have. And you start to get a picture as you see all these vignettes of his life that Charles Foster Kane is a narcissist. He's a guy who only thinks about himself. His best friend in the world, at least the man who once was his best friend, tells him, he says, you talk about the people as though you own them, as though they belong to you. You don't care about anything except you. Now, we'll come back to Rosebud in a little bit. It'll be a 100-year spoiler alert for some of you guys. But think about this. Who do you spend the most time thinking about? Which person? 
whose plans, whose wants, whose needs, whose feelings, whose regrets, whose happiness do you put the most effort in trying to pursue? Who are you really about at the end of the day? The Bible doesn't have to guess. It knows that naturally, for each of us, it's you. That's why the command is love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible knows that we are a self-consumed species. The person that you care about the most is most likely, most often, you. Now, don't mishear me. Okay, I mentioned the word narcissist. That word might not be that helpful for our discussion today. The word narcissist is not found uh, in the Bible at all. In fact, narcissism, as defined by modern psychology, uh, kind of might set us astray a little bit. You might think of someone who has kind of these grandiose feelings about themselves, someone who is an arrogant megalomaniac. But really, what we're talking about today isn't so much a clinical diagnosis of narcissism, but rather just asking ourselves the question, do I actually think about myself more than I realize? Maybe I am kind of focused on me too much. Maybe I am kind of, maybe I do kind of view myself as the main character in the world and everyone else is a side character who's supposed to help me out or they're an enemy. Maybe I don't really care that much about other people and what they're going through. And I was reading a book on Ecclesiastes and this is what the author said. He said, quote, if somehow there was to be a digital recorder inside our brain that replayed our private thought world onto a big screen, I wager we would be amazed to realize just how much of our thinking is taken up with one little two-letter word, me. The irony is it's our preoccupation with me that in large part hinders us from being able to enjoy a meaningful life. And that's where the author of Ecclesiastes goes next. In this chapter, chapter 4, the preacher turns his attention to something he hasn't really talked about that much yet our relationships with other people. So let's read the whole text. We're going to be in chapter 4. We're going to read the entire thing, and we'll get through it, I promise. Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 16. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asked, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. 
I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Father, we come before your word. And we know that your word is truth. We know that your word contains in it the salvation that we need. We know that your word is sufficient for our training in righteousness, for correction, for rebuke, for growth. But God, we also know that your word is wisdom. And that your word doesn't just teach us the right way to live, but also the better way to live. And God, I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure that many of us here have heard the words, we should love our neighbor as ourselves. We've considered those words. God, we've heard messages on those words. We might have even memorized those words, God. But I pray that today that you would help us to see the beauty of those words. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would soften us, that we might be able to grasp how great those words are, not just uh, objectively in terms of truth, God, but also subjectively in terms of how they bless our lives. And God, I pray, God, that you would use Ecclesiastes 4 powerfully in every single heart here. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The preacher, the one speaking in Ecclesiastes, he's the voice in Ecclesiastes. He began his book by hitting the same note over and over and over. Vanity, vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. The word in Hebrew is hevel, and we've talked about this. It literally means smoke or breath or vapor. What he's saying is so many things are just ephemeral. They don't have any substance. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. This is his argument. The things of this world, whether knowledge, trying to figure out more, trying to get degrees, being the one person who's figured out all the truth behind uh, what everyone else seems to think, uh, pleasure, pursuing things that feel good, uh, work, the things that we feel are you know, important, the things that we set our hands to, none of these things can ultimately satisfy us or give us any sort of lasting meaning to our lives. In chapter 3, the preacher turned his attention from his argument to his observations. The preacher is showing his work. He wants us to see the world the way he sees it. He wants us to get why he feels the way that he does about things. He's seen how time marches on without our permission. He's seen how everyone eventually dies. And he's realized that as a human being, no matter how powerful or how rich or how wise, we're just limited creatures. The world isn't in our control. Even our own lives aren't in our control, not in the end. But Ecclesiastes, okay, it hasn't been all bad news. Okay, and we've seen this too. Just because we're not in the driver's seat doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the ride. And just because everything under the sun is vanity doesn't mean that this world under the sun is all there is. The point of Ecclesiastes is to give us the clear-eyed wisdom to see that life is a gift from our Creator. Receive it with thanksgiving. That's what the preacher wants us to do. Enjoy it with gratitude. And when you realize that so many things that we stress about and obsess over don't matter, you'll finally be able to live your life with the measure of joy and peace that God's people should have and be able to live for what does actually matter in eternity. And today the preacher adds a, a new wrinkle to his argument. He brings up something that he hasn't talked about, like I said. 
He's been pursuing pleasure, pursuing happiness, pursuing meaning, uh, kind of on his own, it seems, so far. But here he turns his attention to something that we all deal with every day, the people that are around us. And this is what he goes to. You can't control your life, but you can share it. You can't control your life, but you can share it. And this is on the pathway to joy. So today we're going to look at this passage in three parts. Okay, two truths and a lie. Okay, two truths and a lie. A little fun game for you. First, the first truth, hating your neighbor leads to loneliness. The second truth, loving your neighbor leads to joy. And then the third point, which is a lie, people are all that matter in this life. Okay, we'll get there in a little bit. First, hating your neighbor leads to loneliness. Look at verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. The preacher says that he turned a seeing eye to the world, and what he saw was cruelty. What he saw was oppression. And the word for oppression here in the Hebrew is the word asakim, and it refers to the abuse of power. It's a more general word. So last week, Pastor Eric was preaching from the end of chapter 3, talking about injustice in the place of justice. So he is talking about a corrupt judge or a corrupt government that does fall within Asakim. But it could refer to any time someone who has the ability to take advantage of someone else does so. Okay, Anyone who has the slightest power over someone else and abuses that power. He says, I saw all of that and there was no one to comfort them. And the word for comfort here means more than just, you know, soothing words or kind of a warm embrace. What it refers to is active help. So the preacher says, I was looking around the world. I already saw how time marches on. I've seen how everyone dies. And then I looked around and I saw people. And I saw that people hurt other people and there's no one to help them. There are people who are being hurt by others, and there's no one to comfort them. Look at verse 2. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Verse 2 literally says, I sang the praises of the dead. And what he means is, I congratulated the dead. You made it out of this life. Now you don't have to suffer or watch suffering anymore. And then he goes on, verse 3, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So the preacher says, when I looked around and I saw how all these people are being oppressed, how there's so much suffering, after I saw the tears of those who, who are being oppressed, it made me think it's honestly better to not be born than to die or be alive. It's better not to see, to even have to see the evil deeds that the Son of Men do in this cruel world. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt about this. How could he feel this way? Some people are angry. They say, you're complicit. You're the king. You should stop these things. Other people feel disturbed by it. They feel like, how could Solomon, how could someone in the Bible be so hopeless and despair? Don't you have faith in God? But really what he's saying is, I've just seen things. And some of you know exactly what he's talking about. I was reading the other day about the death of baby P. This was back in 2007. I don't know if you remember. This was in the United Kingdom, Um, but it was kind of a big deal at the time. That's what the media and the courts called Peter Connolly. He was this 17-month-old kid who was basically killed by his parents. 
Okay, so in his life, he had suffered something like 50 major injuries at the hands of his mother and I think whoever she was living with. I don't know if it was his father or not. Um, but what made it so disturbing, I mean, it was already disturbing, but what made it doubly disturbing for a lot of people was that he had seen pediatricians. He had seen other people and no one either noticed or said anything. There were so many opportunities for him to be saved from this abuse and these injuries, and yet no one saved him. His entire short life was pain and suffering. And, you know, people afterwards, during the court case, it was on the news all the time, people were saying, we got to change the system. we got to figure out how to get pediatricians more involved. we got to get the government involved. But the truth is, it's not just that the system failed him. He wasn't even safe with his own mother. Okay, it's not just the system that's broken, it's humanity. And things like this remind us of that. Like, you really feel like, what else could have been done? And even if you change things now, that doesn't bring baby P back to life. This is the kind of stuff that the preacher was thinking about. The kind of stuff that makes you feel like, I wish I never knew that. Like, how could people even do this kind of thing? It's hard not to despair when you consider the kind of evil that can reside within a human heart. And this is where the preacher goes next. Now, you might think that these things are unrelated, but they're not. The preacher isn't content to look at the surface of things or even to, you know, wash his hands of it. Oh, you know, there are some oppressive people out there. Just avoid them. There are evil people out there. Uh, There are monsters. Just stay away. No, he actually considers everything that he sees, and then he looks from outside to inside. Verse 4, then I saw, then I saw, that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. There's something within us that's off. He realizes that even good things like our skill and work come from a broken reproach, a broken approach to human relationships. He turns his attention from the worst of mankind to Friday afternoon at the office when this guy that you don't really like gets a promotion over you. Why are we a little jealous when others succeed? Why do we feel a twinge of happiness sometimes when others around us fail? How come we aren't thinking of buying a new car until our neighbor drives up with his new truck? And maybe you don't always feel that way, but have you ever felt that way? The preacher wants to know why is this that we have a negative predisposition to other people in our lives? Where does that come from? I remember playing basketball a few years ago, and there was this kid named Victor. That's not his real name, um, but uh, it's close. Anyway, Victor, uh, I was just talking about him for some reason. I don't know why, but I said, you know, Victor is pretty good at basketball. And, you know, a bunch of us were there. Victor wasn't there. Um, but one of my friends, I guess he heard that, and he took it personally. Like, how could you say Victor is good or better than me? I don't know what he was thinking. The next time we played, my friend played harder than ever before. Uh, he was like playing like all NBA defense on this guy, blocking all his shots, taking him to the hole. I've never seen him before or since ever play or try so hard in basketball. And it was all to destroy Victor because someone said that he was good. Victor didn't even know. He doesn't even to this day. But this is what drives people. Don't be blind to this. I was watching the Michael Jordan documentary and he would make up enemies in his head. He said, that guy gave me a dirty look, or this person talked about me, even though they didn't. But that's what drove him to be better. He would make these enemies to overcome. Why does this happen? It's the same reason why people oppress other people. 
This is what Solomon has figured out. It's because, naturally, we hate our neighbors. We hate our neighbors. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, I don't hate anybody. Okay? Maybe I I feel a slight dislike, but I don't hate people. I'm neutral at worst. Let me explain what this means. We view people as either obstacles or vehicles to our lives. Obstacles or vehicles. This is how one biblical counselor explained it. People either stand in the way of what you want or they're useful for, for what you want. This is our default. We view people this way. The problem in the heart is that we don't actually care about people as people made in the image of God. We only care about people in relation to us. So if we don't like them, if they don't help us, if they're not on board with our agenda, then they're an enemy. They're an obstacle. If they're useful for us, then we will tolerate them for a time because they're a vehicle. And if you still don't get what I'm saying, let's take an example. Okay, let's take an example. Marriage. Uh, I heard someone saying about why they wanted to get married. It's no one here. But I heard someone saying, the reason why I want to get married is because I want to find someone who will love me the way I deserve to be loved. Do you hear that? I want to find somebody who will love me the way I deserve to be loved. And you know what? There's nothing by itself wrong with that. Okay, hopefully your spouse will love you. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to be loved by someone else. But if you think that marriage is what happens when a person promises unconditionally to love me in every single way I want all the time, then you're in for a rude awakening. Your spouse is another person. They're not just a vehicle to your enjoyment and happiness all the time. As nice as that would be, that's not why they exist. They can't do that. If they don't get with the program, they become an obstacle to your happiness. And we see this all the time. Why do you think divorce rates are so high? If you put two people together who just want to be loved the way they feel they deserve to be loved, then they're not going to last very long. You don't have two people. You only have two obstacles sleeping in the same bed. Have you ever thought about why you just don't like certain people? Have you ever thought about, have you ever considered maybe that it's because you don't find them useful for your purposes? Obstacles and vehicles. I think about the root cause of so many of my people problems, the conflict, conflicts, the complaints. So often, so often the cause is just, they didn't really do what I wanted. They didn't recognize me the way that I wanted. They didn't help me in the way that I wanted. They didn't appreciate me in the way that I wanted. It's always I, I wanted, what I wanted. Really, this is about selfishness. And this is where hatred comes in. Because in the Bible, okay, we might be thinking about hatred as in I have a strong emotional feeling against that person. I have a strong dislike. That's a small part of what hatred is. But in the Bible, when the Bible talks about love and hatred, it's not talking so much about emotions. It's talking about priorities. It's talking about priorities. When God says, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? It's not saying that God had like an intense dislike for Esau. Not really. What it's saying more is that he chose Jacob over Esau. This is why in Luke 12, when Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. People read that and they're confused. How could he say you got to hate your father and mother? I'm supposed to honor my father and mother. Is this a contradiction? I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Is this a contradiction? It's not. What he's talking about is priorities. Jesus is saying, you can't call me the Lord of your life if I'm like the 10th priority for you in your life. 
That's not what lordship is. That's not what discipleship is. The truth is, you can hate your neighbor even if you feel mostly neutral to this person because they're not a priority to you. You can hate your brother even if you like him personally because he's not a priority to you because hatred in a biblical sense means taking them off the list of what's important. It's about me before you. And when you realize this, you'll understand where the preacher goes next. He has these two wisdom sayings, these two little proverbs that don't seem to fit really, but in context they do. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. It seems to be a a little bite-sized nugget of wisdom about laziness. Okay, what he means is when you don't work, when you don't provide for yourself, you'll have nothing to eat except yourself. Inactivity is foolish because it only hurts you in the end. It's a good word. But what does this have to do with relationships? Well, remember, verse 4 was about the toil that comes from envy. So let's say you realize, okay, you know what? I am kind of selfish. I I am kind of driven by my competition with others. And not just a healthy, friendly competition, but really wanting to be greater and better and kind of stepping over people. So maybe, you know what? I, I just won't do anything. Forget it. Disengagement from the world where work and and where relationships are inescapable is foolishness. That's what the preacher is saying. You'll only hurt yourself in the end. Now hold that thought. Verse 6, another proverb. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls full of toil and a striving after wind. Now the word for quietness here in Hebrew means peace. It's a settled contentedness. There are more important things. This is what the preacher is getting at. There are more important things than striving and toiling. There are more important things than your own goals and your own ambitions and success. Better to have less and be content. That's what he's saying. And he's actually being more specific because if you look at the context, verses 7 and 8, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and, my, and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. He saw people who are working so hard, but they have no one to share a home with, no one to share these toys with, no one to give this money to. And they never even ask, why am I doing this? Why am I killing myself? See, the preacher wants us to think, do you want to know what the ultimate vanity is? Do you want to know what true unhappiness looks like? It's about getting ahead at all costs. It's hating your neighbor, looking out only for number one, and then dying alone in your empty apartment or mansion or whatever it might be. Having all the toys in the world, like I said, no one to share them with, no one to play with. You won't be satisfied with riches no matter how much you get. So going back to verse 6, what he's saying is it's better to have less and have people to share with. It's better to have less than to have two hands full of toil and whatever lonely reward comes along with that. I don't know if you guys know the fable, the grasshopper and the ants. Okay, what happens is uh, it's, the, the, it's the summer and, and the ants are toiling away and they're getting all this stuff for themselves, right? Food for the winter. And the grasshopper is just singing and fooling around and making music. And they tell him, right, you got to prepare for the winter. And he says, uh, I'll do it later. And I'll do it later. And then winter comes sooner than he realizes. And the ants are prepared, and he's not, and he dies. 
That's basically what, in the cartoon version that I saw growing up, the ants say, why don't you come on in? And, and they let him into their cave or whatever. But that's the cartoon. Okay, in the real story, the grasshopper dies. And the truth is, some of us are grasshoppers when it comes to relationships. You're not in the winter yet, but right now you know that certain things need some attention in your life. Your marriage needs some attention. Your kids need some attention. Church relationships, your siblings, your friends, whatever it might be. And yet you don't give any real value to them. We keep putting off effort into family and friendships and fellowship. And at the end of the day, it's only going to hurt you. It's only going to come back to bite you. I mean, tell your kid you'll play with him later enough, and later on he'll stop asking. You don't have to be older and wiser to figure this out. You've seen it a million times. Tell yourself that you'll get more serious about investing in your marriage when you have more time. And when you finally do have more time, it's too late. I was listening to the speaker at like a homeschool convention, and he was saying that there's a disproportionate amount of homeschool parents that get divorced. Now, I'm not saying don't homeschool, okay? This is, the reason why is because he said, rightly so, these parents are so invested in their kids but what he wanted to warn them was, you got to invest in your marriage. Your kids are going to grow up and become adults. That's what you're preparing them to. But your marriage is actually a more important relationship than that. And that's the foundation for those things. And yet so many people focus so microscopically on their kids without thinking about the person that they have committed their lives to. Tell yourself that you'll get more involved in church next season. I'll sign up for community group next time. I'll come to church next week. I'll start building relationships next time. I'm just a little busy this Sunday, which is exactly what the word of God warns us about. It says, don't make that a habit. It says, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. And some of us need to hear this. But the truth is you might not even be here because it's your habit not to be here. Not only are you disregarding the scripture, but when you need encouragement, when you need accountability, you won't know anybody. And the crazy thing is, we get all these random messages as a church, now that we live in the age of telephones and the internet and Facebook, random messages that say, can someone talk to me, right? Please, can someone talk to me? I have no one. My cousin is a Christian and knows John MacArthur and told me to contact you guys. I'm not talking about anyone in particular here. It just happens all the time. Okay, it happens all the time. And it's because they have no friends, right? They have, they're estranged from their family members, they're divorced, all these different things. They haven't invested in relationships. And now the only person who will talk to them is a random pastor who is paid to do so. And I'll, I'll do so willingly. Or I'll have Erica Kenny do it, willingly. Like, I, that's good. That's what I want to do. But do you see how sad that is, especially for Christians? This is not the design of the body of Christ, what do your actions reveal about your priorities? Like, could your actions be actually communicating, my career have I loved, my children have I hated? Could your actions be actually communicating, my house have I loved, my wife or my husband have I hated? My car have I loved, my friends have I hated? My TV have I loved, my church have I hated? Remember, priorities, not feelings. Does my life reflect that I only truly care about me? That's a hard question to ask yourself. And I'll just leave it with you. Okay, I don't know where all of you are at, but you need to ask yourself this question because if it is, if that's the case, the cruel irony is that you will end up alone. 
Loving yourself, loving only yourself, is actually, when you stretch out the timeline, it's only hating yourself. The only person that you're hurting, the only foot that you're shooting is yours. And this leads to the second point. Loving your neighbor leads to joy. In the big scheme of things, it's better to be a little less successful at work and have a good marriage, right? It's better to have a smaller house and more time with your kids. It's better to have an older car but friends that you can enjoy a meal with. This is where the preacher goes next, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Notice he says better. He says better. This isn't the first time in this chapter he said this. Now, Ecclesiastes has a reputation for being a book about how nothing matters. Nothing matters in the world. Who cares? But that's not really it if you read the preacher's argument carefully. The preacher is a deep thinker, as we should expect him being the wisest man to ever live at this point in history. And he understands that while the world is hevel, our lives are not worthless. Okay, even if our lives are hevel, even if they are fleeting, even if they pass away, they're not worthless. Some things are objectively better than others. And here he does a simple calculus. Two is better than one. You don't have to be a math genius. Okay, two is better than one. Now, readers of the Bible should already know this. If you started a Bible in a year plan and you only got through Genesis 1 and 2, then you should already know this because God created the world, created everything in it. Everything was good in the Garden of Eden. Work was meaningful. Relationships were good. But wait, there weren't any relationships. Everything was good, but God says, he sees the man and God says, it's not good. Something is not good. It's not good for him to be alone. Loneliness is not good. And there's something about marriage here, something about, you know, family. But that's not all there is. In a more general sense, it's just about companionship. Even in a world without sin and without death and with all the pleasures in the world without pain, being alone is not good. Now, Solomon expands on this idea. Why are two better than one? Because they have a good reward for their toil. Now, the word for reward here in Hebrew is the word sakar. It has to do with wages. And if you think about it, this doesn't make sense if it's, if he's talking about actual money, right? If you, if you hire two people to work for you instead of one, normally uh, you have less money to pay these people. Okay, he's not talking about you get more money. What he's talking about is when you have someone to share the load with, that is in of itself its own reward. And if you look at verse 10, this makes the path of his thought more explicit. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. A companion is there for you. That's what he's saying. Tolkien understood this. This is why in The Lord of the Rings, he has the character Samwise Gamgee, right? Frodo doesn't go by himself to destroy the ring at Mordor. And if he did, you know that he would have failed because there were points where Sam had to literally carry Frodo on his back. And that's the thing. In life, sometimes you're going to stumble and maybe even fall. The preacher is being practical, but he's also being metaphorical here. Life is full of pitfalls and challenges and difficulties, and you're going to need someone to help you sometimes. Okay, the world is not designed as a single-player game. You can't succeed in that way. So blessed are you if you have someone, and woe to you if you don't. Verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Now, specifically, he's talking about travel here. Okay, some people are like, well, I don't want to share a bed with somebody. In those days, if you traveled out into the wilderness, you wouldn't have a hotel to stay at. You wouldn't have a car for obvious reasons. Okay, you can sleep in there. 
there wasn't anything like that. So you basically have to just lie on the ground. And if it was cold outside, if there was wind, then what you'd want to do in your group is lie next to each other so that you'd have body warmth so you could actually sleep. He continues the travel image in verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold, a threefold he's saying that wrong, threefold cord is now quickly broken. Again, travel if someone tries to rob you along the way. Think of the story of the Good Samaritan. You're by yourself. You get ambushed. He might get you. He could probably get you one-on-one. He has the element of surprise. But it's hard for someone to take down two people by himself. And three is even better. A three-fold cord is even better. Again, he's being practical, but he's being metaphorical. On the journey of life, sometimes it's going to get cold. Sometimes you're going to have enemies who are out to get you, so to speak. And it's in these moments you'll either have the blessing of companionship or you won't. You might have the blessing of we, or you might have the loneliness of just me. Now, again, some of us might object here. Okay, we already don't like the idea of sleeping next to, next to someone. We have personal space issues. But some of us might be thinking, I don't really like people. Okay, That's kind of the big objection that I have. I'm fine being alone. Okay, I'm an introvert, and maybe you're an extrovert pastor, but I'm not. I know someone who likes to say that he has phobia, okay, and that's what he made up. So FOMO, have you heard of it before? It's slang from like 2016, but FOMO is an acronym for fear of missing out. People have fear of missing out. They have FOMO. They wish they were invited to things. They're sad. They look at social media, and how come everyone was hanging out except for me? But my friend says, I have phobia, fear of being invited. He says he doesn't want to deal with it. I don't want to say no. I don't want to say yes. So please don't even think about me. He wants to disappear. A lot of us feel this way. But maybe we're misunderstanding what I'm saying, and more importantly, we're misunderstanding what the preacher is saying. He's not saying it's easier, okay? He's not saying it's more fun all the time. He's not saying it's all rainbows and butterflies. He's saying that it's better. It's better. Two is better than one. Three is even better than two. And yes, it is better for you. But you have to think outside of yourself. It's not just about you. Could it be that it's also better for them? Have you thought about that? Like, I don't want to sleep next to someone because I don't care if I'm cold. Have you thought about them being cold? I I, I take uh, martial arts. I can fight this person out by myself. Have you thought about protecting someone else? Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. You can keep your place here, but Luke 10. I mentioned the Good Samaritan, but I want to show you something. Luke chapter 10, look at verse 25. Matthew, Mark, Luke in the New Testament, third book. Luke 10, 25. Luke writes in Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Luke 10, 26. He said to him, Jesus said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So the lawyer, the expert in the Old Testament law, 
He answers correctly. He understands that there are two commandments that sum up the entirety of the Old Testament law. All the commands could be distilled down into two, love God and love others. They're inseparable. And Jesus understands this too. That's why he says in regards to two commandments, do this singular and live. You can't divorce loving God and loving others. So you understand, Christian, you cannot live for God without considering how you live with other people. You cannot do it. You cannot love God without considering how you love other people. But the lesson doesn't stop there because if this is the case, the lawyer wants to know, okay, who do I have to love? I got to love everybody now. So he, verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with one of the most famous parables of all time. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus told this famous parable in response to a question, who is my neighbor? Someone wanted to know what is the most important thing, and he got it. He knew it was love God and love neighbor, but he still wants to know, okay, who do I have to love as myself? And so Jesus told this parable of a Jewish man who was robbed on a journey. He was left half dead, and the religious leaders passed by, the people who should help, and they didn't. And then a Samaritan saw him and had compassion. And this is, I think, easy to illustrate. Now think of Palestinian and an Israeli. This is how they felt about each other in that day. But the Samaritan saw him and he felt compassion, helped him, took him to an inn, paid for everything he needed. And it's a powerful story. But the context makes a huge difference because in the end, what does Jesus say? Look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Not who is my neighbor, be a neighbor. You're not thinking about it right. Not who is my friend, be a friend. Not who is my companion, be a companion. Not who is my brother, but be a brother or sister. It's about the kind of person that you are, not the kind of person that they are. See, the commandment is meant to shape us into something, into someone different, into someone who is better. You know, I was at a memorial service this past week. A husband of 50 years passed away, and his widow was there, his son, his grandchildren. And I was reading the program, and his wife wrote a letter to him, kind of posthumously. And I wish I kept the program, but I didn't. Um, But it struck me. Their marriage was really hard. Okay, and they were sharing about this, too. The husband struggled struggled with substance addiction for the early years of the marriage. He was in and out of, like, rehab. I don't know, all these different things. He was gone a lot. But she stayed with him. And then finally, when he was uh, later in life, he became a Christian. He was able to overcome these addictions. But soon after this, uh, he started dealing with this genetic disease, uh, a terrible degenerative disease, which robbed him of his ability to walk and to talk and to take care of him, to really do anything at all. And when I met this couple, 
uh, it had already been a few years, and he, she had to care for him 24-7, basically. Um, I mean, he couldn't do anything at this point. But she didn't write in her letter just about the good times. She didn't say, well, let's just remember the good. She didn't even write in her letter anything about, oh, you know, it was hard, but God helped us survive. No, she thanked God in it. This is what struck me. She thanked God. She said, it was an honor to take care of you all these years. God used it to help me grow in a lot of ways I needed to grow, to grow into a more loving person who wasn't so concerned with myself. She said, you know, I'm an only child, and I think you were there to help me get over my only child tendencies. The preacher says, two is better than one. And and my fear is a lot of us think, okay, uh, what do I get out of that? You have to understand it's not about you. You do get something out of it, but it's not about you. And when you realize that, when you fully internalize that, there's freedom there. Freedom from self-centeredness, freedom from self-consciousness. What do people think about me? Freedom from bitterness and anger and preoccupation with how others haven't been what I wanted them to be, what they should have been. Loving others is about putting yourself after them. And the beautiful irony is that in loving others, in the end, you do actually get a blessing. Loving others, putting them before you actually leads to you in the end loving yourself. Because you will be warmer you will be stronger. A threefold cord will not be so easily broken because as you give what's better, you get what's better. And it can start today. You know, I was talking about my Phoebe friend. Funny story, I was back at Lighthouse. That's the church that planted Zoe about a year ago. And uh, I was in the cry room because Levi was just born. And my friend came in, who I've known for years, and he had just had a baby too with his wife. And we just said hi a little bit. And I was thinking, wow, it's been like 10 years and he's still at Lighthouse. And the crazy thing was the first time he came, he almost didn't stay. He came when the church was a lot smaller and he was just visiting. And he said that it seemed like everyone kind of knew each other already. And he was kind of feeling like on the outside. So he said, maybe this isn't the church for me. I think it's fine, but maybe I'll look around more. And he said when he was about to leave, someone came up to him and just introduced himself and said hi and asked him about his life. And he said, wow, I feel like, you know, I feel pretty welcomed here. I'll come back. And then he's still there. He met his wife there. He has that kid that I saw because of that. And the interesting thing is, the funny thing is, the person who introduced himself was the phobie guy. The phobie guy. Maybe for you, introducing yourself is not a big deal. But for some people, it's an act of self-denial and self-death. But that's what it is. That's it. And this leads to the final point. We've seen two truths. Hating your neighbor will lead to loneliness. Loving your neighbor will lead to joy. And now a lie People are all that matter. People are all that matter. That is not true. Charles Foster Kane's ex-best friend told him, you talk about the people as though you own them, as though they belong to you. You don't care about anything except, uh, except you. But then he went on to say, you just want to persuade people that you love them so much that they ought to love you back. Only you want love on your own terms, something to be played your way according to your rules. You just want people to love you a certain way. The preacher ends this chapter uh, on relationships, on people, with an interesting little parable. And this also seems like it doesn't fit at first, but we have to understand that this is the warning we need at the end of teaching like this. For if we truly grasp the nature of relationships, if we see that it's better and that we need them, we might be tempted to go too far and believe the lie that our lives should be all about people and having a lot of friends and being popular and well-liked. That's not the truth at all. 
If we make our lives all about people being there for us, I'm going to be there for people, so they will be there for me, we're bound to be disappointed in the end. Look at verse 13. Read to the end. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after a wind, a striving after wind. The story is a little confusing. Okay, I'll admit that. You might not even get what he's saying because in the Hebrew, it's a little ambiguous as to who's who. Okay, are there, is there two young guys who become an old? Like, who's he talking about in verse 14? Is he the youth or is he the old king when he used to be a youth? And some of you are like, I can't even think about this now. You've been talking for an hour. Let me make it simple for you. Okay, there's some debate as to how uh, exactly the details of this story unfold, but the general flow is not up for debate. Okay, a poor but wise youth rises up to take the place of an old king who has become hard-headed and foolish in his old age, okay? This new king was beloved by the people, but even he, at the end of his life, lost his popularity as a new generation arose. However you want to cut it, if you want to say that one king is one king or whatever it might be, it's still the same cycle. A young person rises up to take the place of an old person, and everyone loves him at first, but soon the new young people reject the old person, and the cycle continues. And the preacher ends this chapter with this story, and then he says, this also is vanity, and this is the point. The love of people is fickle. The love of people is fickle. You can do everything right. Okay, People might esteem you for a time, maybe even a long time, and yet popularity is hevel. We see this in the world. People, the media, social media, we anoint these people as the most popular person. We give them their 15 minutes, but at minute 14, you start to see people turn against them. You have haters who say, I never liked them in the first place. You have critics who dig up the dirt from their past. And this person who we made a star becomes our punching bag. It's a vicious cycle. The preacher wants to warn us, people are not all that matter. And what I mean by that is, you can't live for people. You can't live for people. Because you might think, okay, I just got to give love. And in the end, I will get love. But people, they're fickle, man. They might love you today. They might not love you tomorrow. Being liked by them or being unliked shouldn't drive our lives. Their opinion is not the most important thing in the world. Yes, people and relationships are a blessing in this life east of Eden. But you can't find all your meaning and happiness and joy in them. You can't live for being accepted by everyone. You can't live for having the most friends. You can't live for being loved unconditionally by a fallen human being. No marriage, no church, no children, no friend group, no club, whatever it might be, can bear the weight of your entire life. It'll never happen. Some of us are always jumping from thing to thing. The next person, the next people, they will, they will love me the way I deserve to be loved. That's not how it works. So don't believe the lie that people are all that matter when it comes to happiness. You need something else that will ground you. So where does that leave us? We're called to love people as we love ourselves. But it's very difficult if they don't love us back. And this is where we have to recognize. This is where we have to recognize where God fits. Turn with me to Mark 3 and then we'll close. Mark chapter 3. Second book of the New Testament. This is one of my favorite passages. 
in the entire Bible. Mark chapter 3. Verse 1. I'll give you a second to turn there. I hear some pages. Mark 3, verse 1. Again he entered the synagogue. This is Jesus. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that's the religious leaders, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. That's Saturday, the day of rest, when Jewish people, according to the law, aren't supposed to do work, so that they might accuse him. Because if he does a miracle on the Sabbath, that's work, and he's breaking the law, and they can condemn him, and they won't have to believe in him. Verse 3, what does Jesus do? He knows they're watching him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. Now, you got to understand how the synagogue was set up. It was like a half circle, maybe even a full circle, but a half circle, and everyone's surrounding, and Jesus often taught in the synagogue, and he's there in the front, and he tells the guy who's probably in the back who doesn't want to draw attention to himself, come to the front, come to the center. You don't know what's going to happen. He's had run in with the religious leaders before. Verse 4, and he said to them, the man comes forward. He says to everyone around him, he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. What are you supposed to say to that question? Is it lawful to do good or to do bad? Answer the question. They have nothing to say. And he looked at them with anger, verse 5, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to them, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And I want you to linger on that. It's such a quick thing. It happens in a moment. But Jesus, he lets the silence linger, and he looks around at everybody, and he's angry. He is grieved. Why? At their hardness of heart. And I want you to understand something. If there was one person who ever lived who knew how messed up people can be, it was Jesus. He knew how cruel the world, how we can be as human beings. He knows how twisted. And then look what happens after this. He heals this man. He blesses this guy. He does a miraculous show of power by the hand of God. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The very people he came to save went out to figure out how to what? Destroy him. Why? Because he helped somebody. If ever there was a man who was let down by people, it was Jesus Christ. Betrayed by one of his close friends, denied three times by his closest. If ever there was a man who knew how fickle people are, it was Jesus. If ever there was a man who got how little we deserve to be loved and didn't receive love, it was Jesus. And yet in love, he went to the cross and he died the death you and I deserve. And he bore the wrath that we deserve upon himself, willingly, without holding any grudges. Jesus loved us even to the point of death and death on a cross. That's what the scripture said. And this, beloved, is the mind that you and I have now in Christ. That though everyone around us is a fallen sinner, Christ died for us. And we can love because he first and still does love us. And what did the scripture say? For the joy set before him, Christ endured. And friend, there is joy at the end of this path. This path of sacrifice, this path of putting others first, this path of love. For on this path, we walk in the footsteps of Christ. 
We'll close here. What does Rosebud mean? Do you guys know? If you've seen the movie, you know that's kind of the big reveal in the end. So they're interviewing everybody. They want to find out what Rosebud means. And for the people in the movie, they never figure it out. They're like, I guess it's just a meaningless word or we'll never know. Um, but then the camera zooms in on this old sled that Charles Foster Kane had kept all these years. It was his sled that he had as a kid. And they put it in the fire and it's being burned and the camera zooms in on the word that's on the sled and it says Rosebud. And I remember watching this uh, actually with Matt Sawasaki and we were like, wow, that was the most boring movie we ever saw in our lives. There's a lot of ink again that has been spilled on this too. What does it mean? It's about how, you know, we lose our innocence. It's about going back to childhood, all these different things. But I think one of the points of the story is everything you already need to be happy, you already have. Everything you already need to be happy, you already have. And while there's an argument to be made about a secular version of that, it's definitely true for the Christian. Everything you need to be happy is already yours. God has given you relationships, whether it's a marriage or children or friends or neighbors. And even if you have none of those things, every Christian is saved into the church. He has given you relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ for all time now and forever. And while people might love, might not love you the way that you deserve to be loved, you can love as you are called to. And in doing so, you will be blessed. Because in doing so, you're stepping into the love that Jesus gave you and is still giving you, even though you don't deserve it. You can't control your life, but you can share it. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to step onto that pathway toward joy? Think about it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to internalize what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. I pray, God, that you would free us to find the joy that is in that. God, that our sacrifice is not a burden. And I pray that our sacrifice would not lead to resentment, but that our sacrifice ultimately would lead us to you and to your son and his sacrifice for us. May we keep the cross of Christ at the center of our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.